This is not the media. This is hell. Saving lives is a crime. That's right, doing the humane thing is no longer legal. In fact, saving a person from death by drowning, that can actually get you arrested, put you on trial, and land you in prison for a very long time. And if that person who you are trying to save from drowning is say, fleeing slavery and happens to be dark-skinned, who knows what can happen? It could lead to the rise of a fascistic far-right that misleads their fellow citizens into believing, well, anything as long as it stokes their hatred. Yes, in Italy, if you save refugees fleeing the nightmare the West has made of Libya, who will risk their lives on the open seas and hope someone will save them from a boat that can hardly be called a boat and was never made to make it across the Mediterranean, yeah, that's illegal. So how did we get to a place where doing the humane thing is a crime and being inhumane is acceptable in our actions and our politics? We'll try to figure out how this nightmare happened when we have the return of journalist Daniel Trilling, who wrote the Guardian article, How Rescuing Drowning Migrants Became a Crime. Daniel is the author of Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe, which Daniel talked with us about back in 2018. You can find our interview with Daniel by going to thisishell.com and searching on Trilling. Lights in the Distance was shortlisted for the 2019 Bread and Roses Award for Radical Publishing and Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year. Daniel is also author of Bloody Nasty People, The Rise of Britain's Far Right, which was long-listed for the 2013 Orwell Prize. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Trilingual, that's with two L's, Trilingual, so it's Trilingual. And you can find out more about Daniel at danieltrilling.co.uk. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind our listeners, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck for his birthday? You sound like hell. Uh, big thanks to Ricola Honey Herb, Cough Drops, 50 Count. <laughs> uh, COVID's really taken all the... F- uh, fun out of being sick because I keep wondering if I can't taste these things anymore and I'm like oh am I losing my taste it's like no because I've eaten 50 of these in the past 24 hours <laughs> and like my tongue is peeling from all the sugar oh I hate when that happens so uh, this is your kid's cold I assume it finally caught up with you oh yeah I'm better so yesterday were you not here because you were sick or just because yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, okay All right. I wasn't sure if it was just the new regular thing I just didn't want to get anyone else sick okay Uh, The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, what did you get Chuck for his birthday, wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell face mask. You can check out the new Grand Black This Is Hell face mask and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Again, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com, Alex at This Is Hell.com. But you got to have it in by the end of Thursday's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. On this week's Moment of Truth, or I should say during this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff looks at the spectrum from white to pale to transparent to invisible. All right. Speaking of my birthday, by the way, yesterday Richard mentioned how he had a new work-at-home project as he is going through his old baseball cards and discovered he has nearly the entire 1976 season. And coincidentally, Alex, I wanted to thank you for the birthday gift you gave me, which is a book called Baseball Card Vandals, Over 
200 Decent Jokes on Worthless Cards, which is a collection of images of old baseball cards that have been defaced with ridiculous humor. Like one of a Cleveland Indians pitcher where the word Indian is obscured and the player is leaning in like he's checking signs from the catcher, squinting, but instead there's a drawing of a globe in front of his face, so it looks like he's staring at at this globe intensely, and instead of the card saying Cleveland Indians, it says, Find India. So, so thanks, Alex. Uh, I thought you'd appreciate that book. <laughs> Very weird. But, Alex, you got a book in the mail recently, and we had no idea who it was from, but that mystery has been solved. You got a book that is a collection of the poetry of David Berman, the late singer of the Silver Jews. We had no idea who sent it, and I don't know how much I can actually say, but, Alex, it was sent from a listener who knew of your appreciation of David Berman's music, works somewhere along that book supply chain that can get you such a book, and I'm told that that collection finally was back in print in May, but no longer. Alex, I'm told you got the very last copy from the publisher unless it goes back in print. Oh, dang. Thank you, uh, Mystery Benefactor. <laughs> I'll, uh, after the show, let me know who it is, and I'll uh, get them some stuff. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Then I got a gift, kind of. I want to show you this, Alex. You're going to love the cover of this book. Uh, saving this for Alex so I could get his reaction. Uh, AK Press sent a media copy of a new book of photography called Alex, Unflattering Photos of Fascists, Authoritarianism in Trump's America. I'm really looking forward to the sequel of this book, Flattering Photos of Fascists or Unflattering Photos of Socialists or Flattering Photos of Antifa. I'm really not too sure what the follow-up would be. Unsurprisingly, some of the people involved in that book have been on This Is Hell. It's edited by Christopher Ketchum. One of the contributors is Paul Street. But if you know a fascist, I cannot think of a better gift in this electoral season than getting them unflattering photos of fascists from AK Press. But the best possible gift I got for my birthday was on Saturday, on my actual birthday, October 3rd. I got a copy of the Houghton Lake Resorter, the small town newspaper from northern Michigan that I got as a gift subscription last winter, I think, which seems like an eternity ago. Saturday, the resorter showed up, but something came with the resorter. Apparently, a neighbor gets the Marinette Menominee Eagle Herald, the paper covering the Wisconsin-Michigan border towns of Marinette and Menominee. The area once had two newspapers, the Marinette Eagle and the Menominee Herald, but they must have merged at some point along the way. I'm also betting the two were daily papers at some point, while the collaborative Eagle Herald is only a weekly affair. A lot of these small-town papers are owned by the wealthiest people in town, so it should come as no surprise the vast majority of these small-town papers are decidedly conservative, blatantly Republican, and deal in the paranoia and fear of losing white supremacy and privilege. Of course, they don't view it that way. They think their America is changing, and it's not fair, because we were here first, aside from, you know, the victims of genocide. Sure, they were here before us, but aside from them, we got dibs on this part of the planet. So what these papers that are often owned by the richest locals do to save money and push their ideology is they run articles from the Associated Press that support their views. Sure, they could give their neighbors and fellow citizens an opportunity to write to exercise their freedom of speech, but that's not what these kinds of papers are about. They're about having a monopoly on print media, so if you actually want to find out what is happening around town, 
And one of the few ways you can find out what's happening around town, they can subvert your beliefs with their class politics of protecting the interests of the wealthiest of themselves. If you want to know how the Marinette housing project is going to be financed, you got to put up with writing from that piece of work at the National Review where he was actually the founding editor, Jonah Goldberg. In the column the Eagle Herald shared this week, it was all about how we must keep the Electoral College and nothing screams white supremacy and privilege like the Electoral College. They also ran an AP story on how the number of gay marriages are at an all-time high because, of course, gay marriage is at an all-time high. It probably sets that record every day that gay marriage stays legal. Every minute that gay marriage stays legal. Now, what would be news if suddenly fewer and fewer gay people were suddenly no longer married despite gay marriage being legal? That would be news. Of course, you're thinking, why would anyone run such a story that seems so nonsensical? It's because, and you probably don't know this, but for the right, for conservatives... For your Fox News types, gay marriage is still very much an issue in 2020. In fact, they truly believe that if they can make the Supreme Court great again, they can go back to prohibiting gay marriage. Yeah, it's 2020 and gay marriage is still a big thing with conservatives, although I'm betting you don't know that. But the AP story, Wire story that published, that was published that really caught my eye was one on toilet paper. The headline reads, Patalo, not Charmin, virus brings Mexican toilet paper to U.S. The article quotes a spokesperson for the Swedish tissue company that makes the Reggio brand of toilet paper in Mexico. The spokesperson says it's unexpected that Reggio toilet paper would be found on any U.S. retailer shelves. But there it is on the shelves of the Piggly Wiggly in Sister Bay, Wisconsin, staring back at you with its Mexican rolls of toilet paper, daring you to make America great again. And the Eagle Herald and their owners want to make certain everyone in the Menominee Marinette area knows about this multicultural invasion of bathroom tissue. So thanks to my neighbor for subscribing to the Eagle Herald. Thanks to the post office for delivering it to the wrong address, my address, on my birthday. And if anyone wants to misdeliver or deliver anything to us, send it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we got some more art in the mail. I'll be telling you about that on tomorrow's show. Finally, we got another recommendation for fiction to read during a pandemic from Kevin B., who started this whole conversation by contemplating if we'll all soon be uttering the words of Kurtz at the end of Heart of Darkness, the horror, the horror, exterminate all the brutes. Kevin writes, the obvious fiction that comes to mind is George Orwell's 1984 as activist and political analyst Holly Richardson writes, it was meant to be a warning, not a guidebook. I also have a poem by Alicia E. Stallings, The Machines Mourn the Passing of People, a fictional poem that I hope stays fictional, which you can find at poemfree.com when you search on The Machines Mourn the Passing of People. Glad I could lead your wonder. Sincerely, Kevin B. So, add to the uh, reading list, which already includes Complicity by Ian Banks, Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, Jack London's The Iron Heel, and Everything is Known by Alicia, by Liza Elliott. Add to that list Orwell's 1984 and Alicia E. Stallings' poem, The Machines Mourn the Passing of People. 
indulge me for a moment uh, as I was supposed to read this yesterday, but for whatever reason, when I got in here and went to read it yesterday, that page was completely blank. So I'm going to try this again. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And if you want to help us with this stupid business model, you can subscribe to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which features a classic interview from our nearly 25-year archive of shows that is currently not available online as we work to rebuild our catalog of shows and make them accessible to everyone for free. Plus, you get a new monologue in each Patreon podcast from me. There are over 150 Patreon podcasts currently available when subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. So it's like getting a whole extra year of this is hell on last Friday's Patreon podcast, which you can hear right now at the Patreon site. President Trump got coronavirus and it wasn't even my birthday yet. We shared a 2005 interview with the late great filmmaker, journalist, novelist, and political activist Andre Vichek on how the people of Aceh were quickly abandoned by the outside world shortly after the people of Aceh and their land were devastated by an earthquake. And I also shared my uh, thoughts on another birthday, which reminded me that I was told by my parents that I was a mistake. A nursery rhyme faded me to a life of woe. I was named for a family disgrace, and my parents could not wait until I moved out. So thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon, Evan, Anna Kay, Lizzie, and Richard E. And you are going to want to hear the interview we will be sharing this Friday, especially after hearing today's guest on Europe turning its back on refugees fleeing Libya. We will be sharing our 2011 conversation as the Obama administration and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were in the midst of contributing to the destruction of Libya. We spoke with historian William Bloom, who was on to talk about an article he had written called Arguing Libya, which argued against the ongoing bombing by NATO of Libya. And let me tell you, it was uh, none too popular when William was on saying Gaddafi should not be overthrown and that he actually had done some good for Libyans. But you can only hear all that hilarity by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up on this is hell, the truth about I'm sorry. Coming up on This Is Hell, I have the blurb from somewhere else. Coming up on This Is Hell, the migration crisis on the high seas and how helping those who are migrating has become a crime. More of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what did you get Chuck for this his birthday? What did you get Chuck for his birthday? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Alex Jerry, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell somehow saving people from drowning has become a crime. A humane act has been criminalized and those who have saved lives are arrested, put on trial, even threatened with long stints in prison. Here to help us understand how in the hell all this can happen, journalist Daniel Trilling is returning to This Is Hell. He recently wrote the Guardian article, How Rescuing Drowning Migrants Became a Crime. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Daniel. Hi. Uh, thanks for inviting me back on. Daniel is the author of Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe, which Daniel talked with us about back in 2018. You can hear that interview at thisishell.com when you search on Trilling. He's also the author of Bloody Nasty People, The Rise of Britain's Far Right. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Trilingual. Well, that's with two L's, so Trilingual. Find out more about Daniel at danieltrilling.co.uk. So this article is about both of your books, one on refugees and the other on the far right. How much does the rise of the far right around the world 
depend on the rise of refugees. Maybe that's not the right wording. As we are as we are seeing, and we will continue to see more and more immigration, more and more refugees fleeing climate change and conflicts brought on by climate change. Are we going to see more and more of the far right? What's the how would you link or describe the relationship between the two? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, there was a point sort of five to ten years ago where I, I wrote about both those subjects but considered them relatively separate. But increasingly, when I write about one, I find that I'm writing about the other. I think, um, you know, migration in general is something that uh, right-wing extremists, xenophobes, racist politicians will always try and exploit. But more specifically, the the European refugee crisis, which which reached its peak in 2015 to 2016, was was really heavily used by this new wave of uh, far right populist politicians and campaigners um, in in many parts of the world. I mean, obviously, they uh, encouraged an anti refugee backlash in Europe primarily, uh, but it but it was also heavily used by Trump in his election campaign. You know, he was pointing directly at what was happening in Europe and and, and using that to to propagandize and i think the 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 reason you know it's the the reasons why that happened and those two uh currents came together like that i mean it's partly timing it's also you know it's the first big uh quote unquote refugee crisis that's happened in the era of social media so it was something that this this new online networked way of uh, sort of far-right propagandizing could could really pick up on and so on um and i think you know, aside it being a, you know, it's a, as I was saying, it's a thing that the the far right might always try to exploit. But I think it plays in particularly at the moment to a kind of apocalyptic sense that, that the world is, you know, the world is coming apart and nations need to put up walls and put up borders and shut out outsiders and so on. So do you think it's inevitable that we are going to move further and further to the right politically because of more and more refugees, more and more migration that's going to be forced on us by climate change. And like I said, conflicts caused by climate change. No, I don't, I don't think it's inevitable because I think that way of, uh, that way of framing it sees the refugees and the migration as the source of the problem, which, which I, I quite strongly disagree with. Um, I think, you know, particularly when it comes to refugees, uh, the, the the sort of relationship between that and uh, the kind of fears that that are uh, inflamed by the far right is not a direct one. Very often, you get you get moral panics, you get migration panics uh, that are inversely proportional to the number of people actually crossing a border. So the the UK is a really good example of that. At the moment, this year amid the coronavirus pandemic we've had we've had a new asylum seekers panic that is related to people crossing the english channel from france in small inflatable inflatable boats so you know a miniature version of what we saw in the mediterranean uh over the last few years and this has been treated by by the right right wing newspapers by far right political campaigners um i mean by our right wing authoritarian home secretary as well as some you know new overwhelming unstoppable wave of migration but actually the number of people arriving in britain to claim asylum has fallen this year so it's all about perception and i think i think that tells you something quite important about um the relationship between those two things having said that displacement due to climate change you know it is happening and will happen more often but i think the other crucial part of the story is really that 
um, we have got the capacity and the ability to adapt to that. And we've got the ability to politically challenge those far right narratives. And, you know, although plenty of bad stuff happens and I've, I've, I've got a vague memory that last time we spoke two years ago, I was fairly pe- pessimistic about things. Um, I feel like it's worth, worth stating this time that, that, you know, collectively we can move things in the other direction. So good example of that is that I've just, um, I've been busy today, uh, write, writing a, writing a piece for quick turnaround for, for the Guardian newspaper because, in Athens, in Greece, a court has just reached a verdict in this five and a half year trial of Golden Dawn, who were the, the neo-Nazi political party who rose to prominence during Greece's economic crisis. They became the third largest political party in, in the parliament and they campaigned heavily on refugees and, and migration. You know, that was the thing that they targeted and blamed for all the ills that Greece was suffering during the economic crisis. Um, and that party's been completely smashed. You know, Greek society eventually, it took a while, but it but it came out against them. Um, an anti-fascist movement pressured the government into, into arresting Golden Dawn's leadership. Uh, activists then continued to campaign by sifting through mountains and mountains of evidence to prove that this party was not just a, a regular political party, but it was a Nazi organization with a paramilitary wing. And the ultimate result of that today is that the, the entire party leadership have been found guilty of directing a criminal organization and are now looking at prison sentences of up to 15 years in some cases. So that's just an example of showing that, yeah, the you know, migration happens people are going to be displaced in years to come for various reasons the far right will try and exploit it but they only win if you don't push back against them yeah they only win if you don't push back against them so do you think that that is what happened with golden dawn do you think that can be a template for those who are in opposition to fascism elsewhere in opposition to the far right and especially far right movements that deal in violence do you think that that can just be applied say here in the states or in the uk um yeah i mean in some senses yes the the sort of basic principle behind it is that you don't give ground to fascists um and if that you know if that means they're organizing you know physically to take over space you as a community or a collective find ways of retaking that space or or blocking them from doing so that doesn't necessarily mean you you start talking about violence and fighting back there are lots of different ways in which space can be reclaimed but on the other hand not all far-right political movements focus on kind of violent street activity and if people are operating on a different level if they're operating on the rhetorical level then that's the level at which they need to be challenged so i mean one of the other big stories um in europe which which relates to the 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 article that i wrote that led you to invite me on today is um the far-right politician matteo salvini in italy you know he's somebody who um Although he trades in in right wing nationalist ideas, some of them sort of shade into fascism. He's not the head of a fascist movement in the in the sense that Golden Dawn are, in that he's not trying to, you know, send send squads of fascists out to beat up opponents and claim the streets. What he does is he very skillfully uses the media and uses social media to spread lies uh, and defame people, defame his opponents, defame immigrants and the rest of it. And he he has now been pushed back because politicians in Italy um, and Italian citizens have been challenging him on that level. So 
um, as he's been campaigning in the last year or two, there's grown up this protest movement in Italy called the Sardines, who organise, um, you know, mass protests every, every time he arrives in town. They'll they'll gather outside the places he speaks, try to stop him from speaking, uh, you know, sing sing anti-fascist partisan songs, just to show that he, you know, how however often he might claim to speak for Italy and Italians, there's a huge body of Italian opinion that, that is not with him. So your article at The Guardian, How Rescuing Drowning Migrants Became a Crime, it goes back to August 1st, 2017. And this fishing trawler, this old fishing trawler that's crewed by volunteers from the German NGO Jugendrettet, or Youth Rescue, and the name of the ship is the Juventa. And you talk about how they worked with the Coast Guard in saving those who were adrift at sea in the Mediterranean Sea, refugees fleeing Libya. At the time, how close was the Italian Coast Guard working with the volunteers and how popular was that work with the volunteers? Were Italians maybe even showing some kind of nationalist pride over the fact that they were acting in a humanitarian way? Mm. Well, if you if you think back to 2017, that was the probably the, the fourth year in a row that there had been large numbers of uh, migrants and refugees leaving leaving Libya and attempting to cross the Mediterranean in very unsafe boats, and, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't just Libya at the start. It was pe- people were were moving through Egypt and Tunisia, um, you know, all, as the result of various aspects of of the Arab uprisings of 2011. And initially, Italy's response to that. Well, Italy's initial response was was very slow, and there were a couple of big shipwrecks in 2013, and that actually shocked the country into mounting its own very large-scale search and rescue operation in the Mediterranean. So Italy sent its own navy out into international waters to look for boats in distress uh, and rescue, you know, proactively rescue people to prevent people from drowning. And that was that had huge public support in Italy. You know, I think a lot of people considered it a humanitarian obligation. Uh, as you say, I think, yeah, people were, you know, it was a point of national pride for, for you know, some Italians that the, the country was doing that. And it was also a challenge to Europe. It was a challenge to the rest of the European Union to say, hey, you're, you know, we've we're failing on this. Um, you need to pitch in and help us with this. And Italy's intention I think originally was that the European Union would step in and replace its own uh, search and rescue operations with with an EU-wide effort where everybody, all all the other European member states took part. What happened instead was that the EU didn't really back them up. It it, it launched a much smaller search and rescue operation. And at the same time, Italy's neighbours around Europe, uh, fearing an anti-immigrant backlash in their own country, started to close off the land borders to Italy. So what ha- what started to happen was that people were being rescued and they were being brought to, to port in Italy, but more and more people were being trapped in Italy and Italy's own asylum system was having to accommodate people. And uh, that created... Uh, a backlash of its own in Italy. So anti-immigration voices began to grow louder. Uh, and the Italian the Italian state, which, yes, had played quite a, a major role in coordinating rescues in the Mediterranean, started to get a lot more 
um, uncomfortable with the volunteer-led rescue efforts that, that, that were increasingly taking place in the Mediterranean in 2016, 2017. You write that in 2014, in response to a growing number of shipwrecks on its southern border, Italy had taken the bold step of sending its navy out into international waters to search for boats in distress. The country's center-left government gambled that the operation, which it called Mare Nostrum, Our Sea in Latin, after the ancient Roman name for the Mediterranean, would prompt its European neighbors into supporting the rescue effort and helping look after the people rescued. The hoped-for support never arrived. So was Italy then at the forefront of pro-immigration policy in Europe? And to what extent do you think that policy failed because Europe would not support Italy's humanitarian mission? Well, I, th- I think in some ways it was at the forefront, certainly in making a priority of saving lives. The kind of humanitarian impulse um, was something that was definitely pushed by uh, the Italian government, even, even when other major European powers were, um, were were reluctant to do so. But it didn't, you know, it was a kind of... Um, it was an effort to fix something that was already broken. I mean, you know, there's there's been a large large scale hardship and even death at the borders of the European Union for for quite some time now for for, for years going back beyond uh 2014 and the root of that really is that that collectively Europe has has given priority to border defense rather than the protection of life um to to put it crudely and um, you know, the, the the rescue operation, while important, didn't fix that underlying problem. Um, but the the way things developed since 2014 are exactly as you describe, really. It's the, I would say that the sort of pattern and, and the cause of um, much of the much of the disaster in Europe has been a, a real breakdown in solidarity between European governments when it comes to any of the kind of caring and protecting activities that the state can carry out. You know, they, 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 they act in total solidarity when it comes to security uh, measures. But when it's about saving lives, accommodating people, uh, allowing people to access their right under international law to asylum, suddenly there's a sort of, um, uh, you know, free for all where people try and pass on responsibility to their neighbours. And uh, on top of that, increasingly, if you saw the... Um, ascent to power of right-wing populists in various places. Some countries, you know, t- took a, took an a- actively kind of anti-refugee line as well, which further helped break down that solidarity between uh, European countries. That pro-immigration policy that the center-left government had is what many say was the reason the center-left government fell and the anti-immigrant feeling is why the far-right took power. Did the far-right take power from the center-left in Italy because of a lack of European support for Italy's and the center-left's humanitarian approach to the immigrant crisis on the Mediterranean, can we blame not only Europe's response on the deaths of many people who are trying to flee to Europe, but also on the rise of a far-right Italian political group? Um, yeah, I think to some extent that's true. I think the the breakdown in solidarity helped stoke an anti-immigration backlash in Italy. I mean, you, you saw a similar process in Greece as well over the same period where where Greece was increasingly being used effectively as a, as a kind of uh, place to warehouse refugees in camps rather than allow them to travel elsewhere in Europe. Um, but I think the other the other big part of the picture is that the centre left uh, changed tack when it saw that immigration backlash gathering steam 
and came under attack from from the right and from the far right, it, it essentially tried to co-opt their agenda. You know, the, the sort of classic uh, centrist approach to to the far right, which is well, if you take on a bit of what they say, take on a few of their demands, that will that will keep them out of power and keep you in power. And what what often happens is that. Uh, you end up adopting parts of the far right's agenda. It doesn't make the backlash go away, and an increasing number of voters looking at, you know, you proposing watered down far right policies and the real deal in opposition end up opting for the far right, and that that's the dynamic that that happened in Italy, sort of over two, 2017 and 2018. I, I would also add though that you know when you talk about pro immigration policies. Um, it's quite important not to see that area of policy in a vacuum. So, you know, obviously saving lives, I mean, in my view, saving lives should, should be a given. There shouldn't, you know, there's no reason to not do it if it's within your power. Uh, it's, it's good to, to prioritize humanitarian values and it, it's, it's good to promote an open attitude and open policies to immigration. But um, if they don't come alongside more wider social solidarity they fail you know if you're running you know for governing elite is in control of a country that has got huge inequality um you know doesn't properly support its own population um you you know you you prepare the ground for for resentment and division along the lines of immigration and i think that's been the other big part of the story in europe um over the last certainly over the last decade since the since the financial crisis a decade or so ago that um you know the way countries economies have been run and reformed has not been in the interest of the vast majority of those populations and i think if you want to talk about immigration policy you also have to talk about all of that as well uh, when you talk about the criminalizing of the Jugend Rettet 10, the uh, Youth Rescue 10, the people who were on the ship, the Juventa, you write that in October of 2016, three employees of a private security agency visited police in Trapani. The three had been working as security guards on board the Vas Hestia, a ship chartered by the UK aid organization Save the Children as a condition of the vessel's insurance. On September 10th, the Vas Hestia had crossed paths with the Juventa during a rescue, a long, grueling day of pulling people out of the water in which six dinghies, each with more than 100 people on board, were adrift and sinking. The Juventus deck had become dangerously busy and the Vasestia was one of several ships that arrived to help relieve the pressure. One of the security guards, Pietro Gallo, told police that shortly after the Vasestia took some of the Juventus passengers on board, he saw a dinghy heading away from the Juventa, driven by two, quote, dark-skinned men. This, he said, made us believe that the crew of the Juventa had received migrants from the dinghy, which was returning to the Libyan coast with the smugglers on board. The security guards assumed this meant that the Juventa had collected migrants from smugglers by prior arrangement rather than rescuing people whose lives were in danger. Is the evidence then that against the Youth Rescue 10, the Jugend Rettet 10, is the evidence what two security guards assume about a boat driving away from a skin based partly on the color of their skin as most cases are decided on circumstantial evidence. Do you think that's enough circumstantial evidence to convict the Youth Rescue 10? Um, so that's that's not the entirety of the evidence. Uh, what happened was that that uh, set of suspicions, which they the security guards took to the police, was enough to trigger a police surveillance operation. And so 
in the case file that was, well, it was leaked to the media in, in the summer of 2017 after the Juventus was impounded. There are three incidents that the police say show evidence that the Juventus was collecting migrants directly from smugglers by, by appointment, essentially, which meant they weren't saving lives and were therefore committing a crime because they were helping people cross into Italian territory illegally. Um, but the Juventus crew and their, their lawyers say that, I mean, all of the evidence that the police have presented is is circumstantial or, or simply wrong. Um, in the first of the three incidents, it you've only got the security guards um, say so as evidence. There's, there's no photos or video or anything else to back that up. Um, and the Juventus crew say, well, the rescue that they described was... Uh, not just being carried out by them, but an Italian Navy ship was present, uh, an Irish Navy ship was present. You know, there were official reports about the rescue that were written up at the time, and none of them made any mention of uh, smugglers or people with dark skin in boats heading back towards Libya. And then there are two other incidents flagged by police that where the police have pre prevented, uh, presented uh, surveillance photographs and video evidence that they say shows the Juventus crew again collecting people directly from uh, boats driven by smugglers. Those, those are both from June 2017. And the Juventus crew again say this is completely wrong. Uh, they, In some, some of the cases, they say the photos have been mislabeled. So there are photos that the Italian police have annotated saying this, you know, a picture of a dinghy and the police caption says this is being driven in the direction of Libya and the Juventus crew say in fact actually that dinghy was heading in completely opposite direction and it wasn't being driven by smugglers it was being driven by one of our crew members um, and so in uh, you know on on for their part, they, they say that this evidence is untrue. Uh, to back that up, the Juventus crew also commissioned a research organisation called Forensic Architecture, uh, who've, who've worked on a lot of human rights related in investigations um, using sort of spatial, spatial analysis of video and photo and audio footage uh, to, to reconstruct those two incidents that police say were evidence of of uh, crimes and forensic architecture's analysis also suggests that police photos have been mislabeled or people at sea have been misidentified so in one of the incidents there's i think some video footage of a rescue taking place while two men who may well be of north african origin uh, watch on from a small motorboat and the police said that these people were smugglers and what um, the Juventus crew say and forensic architecture have found other evidence to back up is that those people were most likely what's known as engine fishers. So that's a, that's a common practice in the Mediterranean uh, the, the, around uh, the migrant boats where um, fishermen or other people with boats from, from Libya will sail behind dinghies carrying migrants and wait until uh, the dinghy has been emptied during a rescue and then they'll take the engine from the boat and take it back to Libya so that they can resell it or reuse it. This all seems like a a very desperate attempt by police to get on board that ship and find evidence of any crime to arrest the volunteers. Why was it so important for police to criminalize the activities of the volunteers? What was it about them or their work that angered the local police so much? Well, so in Italy throughout 2017, over the first six months of the year, the country's 
political um, debate really got enveloped by this moral panic over over migration across the Mediterranean. And it was because uh, it was linked to the, the kind of wider factors that I, I was talking about earlier. And Italy was increasingly feeling like it was being asked to deal with this issue all by itself and wasn't getting any support from the rest of Europe. It was costing the country a lot of money to to accommodate people. Um, there was this backlash growing, you know, uh, encouraged by the far right and so on. And what happened over that period is that Italian officials increasingly came to see the NGO rescuers as a, as a kind of inconvenient presence, as did EU officials at the same time. So, so there was an internal... Uh, report by the European Union's border agency Frontex that uh, was leaked to the media at the end of 2016 that said that they considered the NGO rescuers a, a pull factor. So this, this is a phrase that suggests that by rescuing people, all they were doing was encouraging yet more people to make the journey and endanger themselves uh, in future. And so while, while that kind of official suspicion of, of the NGOs was developing, this conspiracy theory driven narrative emerged from the fringes of, of the far right so there were these uh kind of obscure far right um think tanks and social media activists not just in italy but in in various parts of the world different parts of europe who started making claims along the lines of the ngos they're not just unhelpful but they're actually criminal um, they're, they're collaborating directly with smugglers for financial gain. Um, and that was being tied by the far right to this more general far right conspiracy theory uh, about what's called the great replacement, which I'm sure you've, you've come across elsewhere. I think even Donald Trump has um, sort of endorsed this conspiracy theory at points, which, which is this, this, this claim that global elites are conspiring to undermine white majority countries through uh, immigration from from Africa, Asia uh, and, and other parts of the world. And this this far right conspiracy theory driven narrative got louder and louder in Italy. Um, several, a, a post, a, a video post on, on social media by a blogger went viral in the spring of um, 2017. It was picked up by some very prominent politicians, including the far right political leader Matteo Salvini. Um, an Italian prosecutor started giving TV interviews where in one of them he even claimed that smugglers and NGOs were conspiring in order to destabilize the Italian economy. So this this kind of uh, this uh, moral panic uh, grew and grew. And, and during that time, you saw an increasing effort by uh, prosecutors and police to to find fault with the NGOs. So the, the Juventus was the first boat that got impounded. But already there were investigations that had been opened into two others. And after the, the Juventus was seized in the summer of 2017, a series of other uh, investigations and seizures um, followed and continue to happen over the next few years as well. Around the world, we are seeing protests against racialized police violence. To what degree do you think maybe the local police in Trapani may have been driven by any racism, any possible white supremacy within Italian policing against Africans, against migrants? Do you think that that may have played a role in what is taking place with this migration crisis? I, I I wouldn't know enough about the the police in that particular area to say to say that I think that the um, 
the general perception of, of migration from Africa as a kind of cultural and existential threat um, to Italy uh, or to Europe is something that's widespread. And there's there's certainly people within police forces who think that there may well be people who don't think that in police, you know, in the Italian police as well. Um there has in the past, you know, Italy's a country with a long history of far right politics, obviously, and there have in the past been been cases where uh, there have been proven links between elements of the state and and um, and and far you know right wing extremist groups. That doesn't, on the face of it, appear to be to be the case in this context. But where where there are some very questionable links are between. Um, the the private security guards who first raised the suspicions about the Juventa, um, several of whom actually are ex police officers. I think you can you can see a bit of um, uh, racist thinking going on in their assumptions that if they see dark skinned people, they must be from Libya and from smugglers and so on. Uh, but but the, the the more important bit of that area is the fact that when they um, first had suspicions about the Juventa. They the the first people they went to were not the police. What by the account of the security guard that had spoken to the press, at least, the first thing they did was send an email to the Italian Secret Service saying we we've got suspicions about this rescue ship. Um, they didn't hear anything back from the Secret Service apparently. But then the next thing they did was email several opposition politicians, and one of them, Matteo Salvini. Uh, replied almost immediately said yes I'm really interested in what you found out um, can we can we meet and he he talked to them some more and said said to the security guards well actually what I want you to do is carry on uh, spying on the uh, NGO rescue ships not just the Juventa but anything else you see while you're while you're out at sea and, and pass the information directly on to me uh, now what Salvini did with that information is not entirely clear but what we do know is that the following spring, when this migration panic really dominated Italian political debate, Salvini made claims on television that he had access to a, a secret dossier of information that proved there was contact between some of the NGOs and people smugglers. And, and, and on one TV program, he was asked, well, how do you know this? And he said, well, I talk to the people who work on board those ships. I know what's going on. So he was clearly sort of indicating he had a, kind of, a sort of inside track on what was happening. And that formed part of his uh, wider campaigning, which was to attack the government over migration, to say that Italy was being sort of undermined by um, not just by the migrants, but by the NGOs as well. And, and that was politically very effective for him. And in, in fact, enabled him to do so well in, in the subsequent general election that he ended up becoming the country's interior minister in 2018. You write that Italy's government, under pressure from both its domestic opposition and other European states to reduce migration, was turning against the rescuers. Marco Minitti, a former political head of the intelligence services, had taken over as interior minister at the end of 2016. Unlike his predecessors, Minitti was convinced that the priority was to prevent migrants from leaving Libya. He struck deals with several of the armed groups that controlled Libya, offering training to what remained of the country's Coast Guard and negotiating with the militias that controlled smuggling in the coastal city to put a halt to migration. To what extent is there a war in Libya to control the flow of people fleeing Libya? Had Libya become a site of different foreign actors trying to control the flow of refugees out of Libya? Because that sounds like hell on earth. Yeah, I mean, it it is... uh a site for all of that now um, but i think i think the, the the crucial detail is it was a site for all of that under 
Colonel Gaddafi as well. So I had heard you mentioning in in your introduction to to our conversation that you had a guest on a few years ago who who maybe riled up some of your listeners by by suggesting that you know Gaddafi wasn't all bad and it was it was a bad idea to overthrow him and that he did good things for for some people in Libya or or for for sort of um, other parts of Africa perhaps. Well, I think one thing that you can you can um, say for sure he did that was not good for people was that he acted as border cop on the European Union's behalf. So from the early 2000s onwards, uh, the EU and, and individual European governments encouraged um, the Gaddafi regime to uh, stop uh, migrants from traveling through Libya on the way to Europe. And um, with their training and encouragement, he built this big network of immigration detention centers to, to lock people up in, to stop them, stop them leaving Libya and traveling on elsewhere. And from, I've, I can't remember the date exactly, sort of 2004, 2005, this was already causing uh, political disquiet among well some bits of European politics I think there was a evidence heard by a, a, an Italian government commission in 2005 or so that, that migrants were being horrifically mistreated in these detention centers uh, run by run by the Gaddafi government at the time um, and Gaddafi really knew how to play on Europe's Europe's fears of migration so it should be said that most of the migration, uh, that comes from Libya in this way are not people who who are Libyan citizens themselves. It's it's most often people from sub-Saharan Africa um, and parts of the Middle East and Asia who who use Libya as a transit country to try and reach Europe, or who've come to Libya to try and find work or to live there and find the situation there so hellish that they need to get out. And Gaddafi, you know, very very ad- effectively played on Europe's fear of the racialized other um i think in 2010 he insisted that the europe uh, that the european union gave him an extra 5 billion euros or something of that figure to control migration otherwise in his words he would turn europe black so he used this this kind of threat in in order as a, as a kind of bargaining chip uh with the eu which may well have been good for libya's you know sort of standing geopolitically but it but it it, it did what all uh governments uh, who behave in a racist way do, which was it treated the lives of black migrants like they were disposable. And what's happened since 2011, as Libya has collapsed into civil war, is that you've had a mix of militias and what's left of state authorities trying to retain control over over parts of that immigration detention system. Uh, some of the militias are themselves running the smuggling trade. Some bits of the Libyan state are involved in smuggling. Um, so, you know, even people that are officially there to, to protect vulnerable migrants and refugees may well be at the same time trying to exploit them or, or abusing them. And then on top of that, you've had these European governments who are yet again afraid, are afraid of uh, migration from from Africa and from elsewhere, desperately trying to shore up the old system that, that existed under Gaddafi, and that that's where those kind of deals made by Marco Minitti, the Italian Interior Minister, that you, you just described, come into play. So, are abuses in Libya then the consequences of European powers enabling abuses in Libya, whether it was during or after Gaddafi? What, what has life not changed for Libya because those who are really in charge, Europe and the West, still are in charge? Um, 
I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I mean, I'm talking here about life for life for migrants in Libya. Right. I don't write about what life is like for Libyan citizens there, so it's it's kind of different. And I think that um, you know, regardless wh- whatever view you take on whether NATO should or shouldn't have intervened in in 2011 after the uprising, there was an uprising with popular support against Gaddafi. And um, I think it's important to to remember that you know Libyans are people trying to arrive at solutions for their country themselves as well as it being a place that other countries want to get in and control obviously it's a it's a country heavy on natural resources and that that's been a big influence on the way that countries like Italy which is obviously the former colonial power has has tried to engage with Libya and how the US the UK France and so on have also tried to build influence there in order to to get access to those resources um but but when it comes to migration i think the the situation really is that you've got um you've got a mix of things you know one of one of gaddafi's aims for libya was to make it into the sort of leading uh, kind of uh, sort of African powerhouse, you know, one of the continent's leading economies. And one of the ways that he tried to do that was by encouraging migration from sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere in the way that, you know, the US does or the UK does. But um, as we know from our own country's histories, um, governments can encourage migration and want want the sort of economic benefits on the one hand, but can treat the immigrants themselves absolutely appallingly at the same time. And I think there, there's, you know, that dynamic has been in play in Libya for a long time and is still there. So so people in Libya who've got power will look for ways to exploit poor immigrants who, who are oppressed, not only because of their economic position, but, but on, on the grounds of race as well. Uh, you then have another level on the top, which is that Libya is also a country of transit for people trying to reach Europe when they don't have the other means to do so. And so you've got European governments who you know, their number one priority is to stop that kind of migration. They know that by stopping it, they trap people in a situation in Libya in which their rights are being abused. So they find ways to sort of turn a blind eye to it uh, or pretend that it's not happening. And then you've got that third layer on top of the kind of the, the sort of geopolitics and, and, and the kind of military intervention where, um, you know, there you've had this NATO-led intervention in Libya that was, you know, in theory, a humanitarian intervention to stop a big bad dictator, but has resulted in the country collapsing into this horrific civil war. You have regional powers getting involved and so on. All of that makes the situation uh, much worse, I think. But when it comes to the migration issue specifically, I think to bring it back to the case of rescues in the Mediterranean, um, the thing that sort of proved the, the the kind of last straw that led to this this big crackdown on the volunteer rescuers was that you had so you had this dynamic where European governments you know as much as they might have said that they wanted to hold fast to their humanitarian principles or come up with uh, reasoning along the lines of oh if we rescue people it will only encourage more people to make the journey really their their number one priority over the last five years or so has been to stop migration across the Mediterranean from from Libya and elsewhere. They they know that that involves trapping people in a situation where um, their human rights are going to be abused, people are going to be tortured, uh, sexually exploited, um, made to work as as slaves effectively. All of those things are well documented 
um, in Libya when it when it comes to migrants in the country. And eventually they saw the NGO rescuers not only as an obstacle to that goal because they were rescuing people, but as, as a researcher for Amnesty International put it to me when I interviewed her for my piece, the, the NGOs weren't just saving lives. They were, by rescuing people, by making those people visible, they were, they were also bearing witness to that mistreatment that, that happens in Libya. We have been speaking with journalist Daniel Trilling, who wrote the Guardian article, How Rescuing Drowning Migrants Became a Crime. Daniel is the author of Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe, which Daniel talked with us about back in 2018. You can find our interview with Daniel by going to thisishell.com and searching on Trilling. Lights in the Distance was shortlisted for the 2019 Bread and Roses Award for Radical Publishing and Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year. You can follow Daniel on Twitter by uh, following him at Trilingual or trilingual with two L's. Find out more about Daniel at danieltrilling.co.uk. You write that in late 2019, a resolution calling for the EU to improve its search and rescue operations was narrowly defeated in the European Parliament by an alliance of far right and conservative parties. Ursula von der Leyen, the center right president of the European Commission, the EU's executive branch, has promised a humane, human and humane approach in the Commission's new migration pact, a document that will set the course of policy over the next few years. But von der Leyen began her tenure last year by re- remain, renaming her head of migration Commissioner for Protecting the European Way of Life, wording that was condemned for its resemblance to far-right propaganda and quickly changed. So are migrants right now then facing several more harsh years of European migration policy? Is it only going to get worse for migrants fleeing their home countries due to many actions that were started by those same European policies? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got some difficult times ahead. Um, the, The kind of much vaunted new direction in in policy in the eu um is is perhaps not as different to what what we've seen in the last few years as, as von der leyen and her colleagues were promoting it to be i mean there are some more protections in this proposed new plan for people's rights at borders you know uh, for example they're proposing new guidance to make sure that people who step in as volunteer rescuers and humanitarians aren't arrested and criminalized for 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 their actions um so i think it's important you know to take take them at their word on that and hold them to it you know rather than rather than being overly pessimistic if if people keep up enough pressure um there can be improvements made to to the kind of protections that europe offers but the overriding ambition is still to to sort of keep unwanted migrants out and to me that's the source of the problem it's it's the dynamics that you see you know at the borders of the rich world pretty much everywhere that the states are building increasingly tough defenses to try and stop people moving uh, but what that does it doesn't you know it might reduce people moving in the number of people moving in some circumstances but it doesn't stop it entirely and what it does instead is pushes people to take more dangerous routes uh, that are a risk to themselves, but can also inflame those kind of anti-immigration backlashes in, in, in the way that I was describing earlier. 
Daniel, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show, being back on the show. You can find our past interview with Daniel at our website. It's from 2018. Just go to thisishell.com and search on Daniel's name, and you will find it there. Uh, we look forward to having you on the show again. This is fantastic work that you're doing, and I'm looking forward to checking out your uh, writing at The Guardian about Golden Dawn. When is that going to be posted? Uh, that'll be there tomorrow morning. All right. I'll be checking it out. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Truly a pleasure, sir. Great. Thank you. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's today's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Hell is, well, Alex, why don't you tell people what this week's question from Hell is and share a few more responses. This week's question from Hell is, what did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck for his birthday? Aaron B. says, $4 a month, like clockwork. <laughs> Uh, when we say we can't put a price on your support, uh, we can. It's four dollars a month. Uh, Warren L says a hand-me-down copy of Idiot's Guide to Eminentizing the Eschaton. Excuse me. Uh, it took me down a New Republic Online uh, rabbit hole trying to figure out what the hell Warren L is talking about. Uh, Lisa B says a subscription to Teen Vogue. Aww. Andrew P says an escape out of hell. Happy birthday, Chuck. Uh, Andrea T says a quiet moment to ignore the world and cry. Birthday cries are underrated. <laughs> they are. Aaron D says regime change aftershave. <laughs> Aaron A says a oh, Aaron. Aaron A says a mustache ride on John Bolton. Oh fuck! What did you get Chuck for his birthday? What did you get Chuck for his birthday? Angela M says a ticket out of here. <laughs> Jack B says I donated a million dollars to the Trump's campaign in Chuck's name, proving I've learned nothing from five years of listening to the show because this is hell. And <laughs> F says a firm handshake and a hearty slap on the back. <laughs> Eva M says a job. Just follow the yellow brick road to the White House and find the man behind the curtain. Tell him to go back to his bunker. America needs you. Thomas F says HBD Chuck. Jeffrey D says an oligarchical totalitarian America. Garrett L says a nice big cup of kofifi. Oh, jeez. God. Garrett. Jesus. <laughs> uh, Robert P says an old bottle of Ripple since they are now going for over $100 on eBay. Are you kidding? But then again, F eBay. <laughs> wow. Uh, David C says $60 donation to the Biden Harris campaign in his name. Jeff M says cash, HBD. And Justin M says a fully loaded, top of the line digestive system. <laughs> He's roughly goat sized, I hope. <laughs> person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black this is hell face mask which you can see right now by going to this is and you click on support but you got to have your answer to us by the end of tomorrow's show after jeff dorchin in the moment of truth we will be announcing the winner this week jeff looks at the spectrum from white to pale to transparent to invisible tune into tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m chicago time at this is hell.com listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream Alex, who is on tomorrow's show? All right, tomorrow we have Fadel Kaboob and Ndongo Samba Silla, uh, both economists, to talk about their open letter, Africa's pandemic response calls for reclaiming economic and monetary sovereignty. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Today's show is Alex Jerry, and if you would like to be a board operator, as Alex is, as Richard is, all you have to do is email us, chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for new board operators, and that position comes with a very modest stipend. Thanks to Daniel Trilling, today's guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing the show. With my most sincere apologies, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I am also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, 
And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.